Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you with just great, great joy. Joy in being in your house, joy in being with your people, joy on your day, joy on the occasion of uh, us seeing each other face to face. Father, we have the joy of studying your scripture. May this joy be turned into increase for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, just kind of speaking about where we are and and where we're headed, because uh, you can look pretty quickly and see we're coming toward the end of the Gospel of John. And uh, I am going to shift the pace at at a point during our study this morning for two reasons. We, We have three chapters after chapter 18. So on three successive Sundays, we're going to try to cover most of 19, 20, and 21. There's another reason, and and that is that what we've been looking at primarily has been a mixture of historical and uh, and didactic material. The didactic material is Jesus' teaching. That includes uh, the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. And so we're going to go verse by verse, but the historical sections related to the uh, trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection and post-resurrection experience of Christ, those are intended to be easily understandable as historical narrative. And uh, I think sometimes commentators on Scripture and teachers of Scripture get bogged down with the details in the uh, the historical accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection. We're going to look at those details, but trying to find connections and meaning that probably actually detracts from the, uh, what we might say, graphic reality of those, of those texts. So, follow along. But when we were together last, we were at John chapter 18. And this is the interrogation of Jesus by Pilate. And as we saw, it's a fascinating literary passage because one of the things John shows us is the, is the insanity of Pilate by the fact he keeps going out and coming in, going out and coming in. And, and it's because he has Jesus inside under arrest. The inside is where he prefers to do his business, outside the public view of the Jewish people. But the Jewish authorities he has to deal with, and because they don't want to be defiled for the Passover, they can't come inside, so they're in the courtyard. So repeatedly we just see the cycle of Pilate going outside, Pilate going inside. You recall that Pilate has come back to Jesus to say, so you are a king. Jesus said, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now we stopped there because that is one passage that demands our attention. Uh, Not just because of Pilate's evasiveness and intellectual abdication, but because what we see here is the fact that the war against God is a war against truth, and a war against truth is a war against God. There are two things about truth. And uh, I teach apologetics and theology, um, taught uh, a class on uh, you know, the most pressing theological issues earlier, for, mostly for graduate students uh, earlier this year, and I'm right now teaching a class on the most dangerous ideas of the modern age, mostly for undergraduates, and the issue of truth is always there. And so we could look at different understandings of truth. The main thing for us to understand is that 
And many Christians don't think this through. So it's good, good and healthy for us to think this through. Behind every assertion of truth is something, and behind that is something else, and behind that is something else, and behind that is something else. Now, just track with me. So let's say that uh, a John's vest is green. All right, well, is it? Well, what would be behind that? Well, behind that would be that the, the vest is actually a vest, meets the qualities of being a vest. But, but that, beyond that, the color green. Well, what is the color green? Well, it's a part of a light spectrum. And so it's actually something that is definable. You can make it a matter of law. You know, the criminal was wearing a green vest. Uh, or the man that rescued the, the child was wearing a green vest. And you can identify people by that. Because interestingly, uh, color is an objective reality because it's a part of the created world. It's not merely a matter of our social construction. We may call it seafoam green. The light spectrum doesn't care what we call it. It is all a part of something that's real. But what's behind the light spectrum? Well, light. <laughs> and what's behind light? Well, the fact that the light has to be existing for some reason. What I want to show you is that whether you think about it or not, every assertion of truth eventually ends only in God. It can't end anywhere else. And this is something a lot of Christians don't think about. We, we think of mathematical truth, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Well, why? There, there's always, a, there's always a something behind that. And, and so it eventually has to be God. But then there are two other points just to think about as we, as, as we think about truth. From the very beginning... The rebellion against God is a rebellion against truth, with the serpent saying, has God said an insinuation of truth? In other words, God's not really behind that. So truth's always ultimately a matter of life and death, and truth is always a matter of theism or non-theism. That's what it basically comes down to. But then there are two other issues. And, and of these, the first is that every attempt to deny truth is an attempt to have some world scheme or worldview without God. It's an attempt to try to do something. This is why, in modern thought, for example, there are efforts to try to come up with other ways to ground truth, other authorities, that's the end, ultimate authority. And so the rise of, in the enlightenment of the empirical scientific method, well, people went, ah, okay. Okay, now we've got a way of determining truth and God doesn't have to be a part of the picture. Or at least we can just say God's kind of bracketed as the one who may have created. But as you know, that didn't last long. You know, and, and so, but now you just have the universe as a self-explanatory fact and ultimately it's grounded in something. But the problem is that science can't ground itself in itself. And so the, the myth of autonomous science, and besides that, there's no ultimate authority to determine what is right and wrong. And so instead you have scientific consensus, right? I mean, that's what you've got. The scientific consensus is pretty pro-gravity, okay? I've not seen any major debates about gravity, although quantum physics raises questions about whether it's constant in the way we think of it as constant. Don't worry about it. Go to the balcony and drop a book. It's going to fall. Don't hit anybody. All right, but now you see, and haven't we seen it in the most ridiculous way, and I try to bring attention to it on the briefing, you know, regularly, where Dr. Anthony Fauci, a name awkwardly brought into a Sunday school lesson. 
with this constant mantra of the science. The science, the science, the science. And, and, and the, the very phrase, the science, and it's not just he, it's so many others. And I first clashed with him uh, when I was editor of the Christian Index, and he was in the same job he holds now, and he became a major uh, factor in pushing the idea of safe sex uh, in the face of the AIDS revolution. And it was a complete moral sellout, so he's been on my list ever since then. they actually, at the CDC, changed the way they described the AIDS virus under political pressure from the LGBT community. And uh, not that they would do anything like that today, having held 149,263 positions on various things in the last 12 months. But nonetheless, and I believe in science, I do believe. I believe in science, though, as a method. I believe in science as a method. I do believe in scientists, not only that they exist, but I'm thankful for all kinds of things that modern science can bring. But the naturalistic uh, frame of most modern science just can't carry the weight of its own authority. And, and so, but nonetheless, you have a new priesthood wearing white robes, or at least they used to, and, uh, and, and, and you just invoke the science. It's no longer the Vatican. It's, it, it's no longer the church. It's... It's no longer the Bible. So the second thing is you have to have a quest for some other authority. But the, the, the third point I want to make is, is that we're living in an age that actually is at many of its uh, leading edges, so to speak, of development in a position still of denying that truth exists. Now that's the ultimate way of trying to dismiss the truth question. And so you've got all kinds of postmodern theory and I know that's a dated term, but it's not dated in the sense it didn't go, that it went away. It didn't go away. It's still very much out there now in the form of critical theory and, and, and other shapes that basically denies that there is any objective truth outside of us to which we are obligated, and instead truth is a power game. Uh, people call things true because it's convenient to them to, to maintain their power and hierarchy in society. And, and, and so we're looking at all this, and you recognize... There are modern assaults on truth, no doubt. But they are all part of the perennial assault on truth. And going back to our first principle, there's always got to be something behind the truth assertion, and and there's going to be something behind that, something behind that, until you get to something, and the only place you can adequately stop is God. And, And not just God, the concept but the God of the Bible, the creator God who holds all things together by the power of, uh, of his might. And, and so it's actually God who makes 2 plus 2 equal 4. And it has created a stable universe in which 2 plus 2 equals 4 are always equal 4, never going to equal 5 or 3 and a half. All right. So Pilate turns to Jesus and simply says, what is the truth? And now there is, in that passage, when, when, when Pilate says, what is truth? It's important to recognize that no one reading the Bible and no one hearing that, let's say the first readers of John, they would never have seen that as just a statement, how do we know the truth about what's going on here? No, it's, it's not, what is the truth about this? It's Pilate's craven abdication of truth. And, and so this is an agnostic position. On, at least he implies an agnostic position on truth. I don't really know what the truth is. I'm not really obligated to the truth. 
And, uh, and that's, that's just one of the most basic forms of sin found in the world. It's also, you know, a disguised form of idolatry. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve someone else, and there's going to be a theory of truth uh, that comes with that. The immediate context, of course, is that Pilate doesn't want to have to make a decision concerning Jesus. It's a no-win situation for Pilate, the functionary. Pilate just wants to find a negotiated settlement here. And with everything going on, even right now, you know, in, um, in, in Israel, and uh, Israel and Gaza, and, and all the rest, just about every commentator talking about this will say, there is no solution to this problem in sight. Okay, so the best anyone can try to do is to manage the situation. It's American foreign policy. Well, the situation Pilate has, from a governor perspective, answerable to Rome, is there is no way to solve this issue. And so he's just going to try to negotiate. And so his evasiveness is a part of that negotiation but then notice how the passage shifts. So, so you see Pilate's soullessness there in verse 38. Then we're told after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews. So he entered, he has to go outside again. I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now, I want you to make a connection between chapter 18 and uh, verses 39 and 40. And then what we will see in chapter 19, verse 15. But we're not there yet, but we're about to get there. So, Pilate comes out and, and, and rather interestingly says, I find no guilt in him. Now, there are crucial points in this. You have to follow the pronouns. You have to follow what, what's going on. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Clearly, the Jews found guilt in him. The, the, the Sanhedrin, the temple authorities, they, they're those who brought the charge against Jesus, but they don't have the ability to execute Jesus, to crucify Jesus. Only Rome can do that. So, so one of the interesting things is, is that Pilate basically says, I find no guilt in him. What is the one thing Pilate's concerned about? Pilate isn't concerned about anything theological. Pilate's not concerned with whether or not he is actually the Son of God incarnate, even if he understood the concept. That's not his concern. His concern is, is Jesus an insurrectionist against Rome? The only crime he's concerned about, really, is treason. That's it. Pilate says, I don't, he's not a traitor. I don't, I don't find any, any guilt in him. But what to watch so closely here is when he says, just remember that it is a Passover and there's a custom that I'll release one man to you. Okay, but watch the language extremely carefully. And so you can see what Pilate's proposing, but notice the words he uses. He says, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Jesus. Now don't read into that that Pilate has decided on a monarchical claim by Jesus. That, that's, that's not what's going on here. Pilate has decided that he's going to throw this issue right back to the Jewish authorities and find out if they're going to save one of their own. 
whether Pilate expected him to say, yes, give us Jesus or not, he really did create the tension when he said, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? What, 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 are, the, what are the Jewish authorities going to say now? Because if they say Jesus, they've just confirmed that he's the king of the Jews. Pilate is spineless, but he's not stupid. Pilate knows exactly what he's doing. Even in the language he's using there, he throws it back on the Jewish people saying, this is your problem. But then they say, give us Barabbas. Now, here's the thing. Barabbas probably was an insurrectionist. The, the word robber here is a, is a word that could very well imply he was, a, he was an insurrectionist. It's also a name that's commonly well known in insurrectionist circles. It doesn't mean it was this Barabbas. Obviously, we know other, uh, other people with similar names. But the fact is that the, there's good reason to believe that they were actually saying someone, invoking someone, saying, give us that insurrectionist robber. Give us Barabbas. And we're told now Barabbas was a robber. So John tells us conclusive guilt on the part of Barabbas. But the Jews demand him. They, they are offered the king of the Jews. Now just catch the irony. They're offered the king of the Jews, and they demand a robber. Pilate offers to give them Jesus, whom he's found not to be an insurrectionist and a criminal, and instead the Jews demand the release of a criminal. It is, this is John's use of irony, even in the way he, again, someone else telling us the same facts might put it in a slightly different context, might use different words. The words that John uses by the Holy Spirit point to the excruciating irony here. These Jewish authorities are determined to be rid of Jesus, even if it means betraying themselves, even if it means betraying their own morality, even if it means betraying the law, even if it means betraying their own people. And it gets much worse. This is where the pace quickens a great deal. Chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Okay, first of all, just to look at what's going on there, there were two floggings, two flogging penalties. There was one that was so severe many people did not survive it, uh, and there was one that was more official. The fact that Pilate is doing this, and it does indicate that, uh, that Pilate's in action here, not just that he ordered the flogging, but uh, that he flogged him. And uh, that would be likely... Governors didn't generally give the most serious of the floggings. That would be beneath their dignity. So it was, it was the more humiliating flogging that likely took place here. But nonetheless, of an extreme pain. Notice that the soldiers are calling him, Hail, King of the Jews. And so, again, it's just mocking. And that, again, is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that, that this mocking would come. But, but then notice that this has taken place inside because Pilate then has to go outside again and he said to the Jewish authorities, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Interesting statement because he's just flogged Jesus. 
But now it's as if one more time he wants to state rather emphatically that he's found no guilt in Jesus. Then you see in verse 7, because when, when Pilate brings him out, he's flogged him. He has not handed down a sentence of crucifixion. So just following the sequence, you'll notice it's here, and this becomes extremely crucial, that it is the chief priests who cried out, crucify him. The determination to crucify Jesus comes from those identified here uh, as the Jewish leaders and the officers, the leaders of Israel. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So what in the world's going on here? Is this a theological issue? When Pilate hears that the Jewish authorities say, no, we have a law that he must be crucified because he called himself the Son of God. Now, by the way, is there such a law? I mean, you have the Old Testament. Is there such a law? There, there is no such law. But there is a law against idolatry. There's a law against blasphemy. And it's probably blasphemy in particular that they're accusing Jesus of. But, but you notice the language they're using. We have a law. You can look up, it's on the statute books, and it's in volume 7, paragraph 541, section C. It's a capital crime to declare yourself the Son of God. No, but you can see exactly what's going on here. But then notice verse 8, when Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. Why would Pilate be afraid once he heard that? Afraid that it's true? No. There's no evidence that Pilate has any theological recognition of the gravity of the situation at all. But the Jewish authorities have just raised the stakes enormously because remember that according to the official cultus of Rome, there is a God and it's Caesar. And there is no God but Caesar. This will become such a crucial issue in terms of the Christian church but right now, you'll notice, it's not Pilate who brings up this issue. It's the Jewish leaders who bring up the issue. And now Pilate's afraid, even more afraid, because now you've got all kinds of issues he's got to deal with. Now you have the Jewish people up in the ante saying to him, this is not only someone who's an insurrectionist against Rome, Pilate didn't believe it, but this is someone who is a threat to Rome's own order. Now, is Jesus a threat to Rome's order? You bet he is. You bet he is, but, but Pilate has no equipment for understanding this whatsoever except self-defense, and that is translated into even more fear. So he goes back into his headquarters again. Don't miss the in and out, in and out. Now he has to go back. Jesus is still on the inside. He goes back to his headquarters, and he asks him an interesting question. Where are you from? Now, he's not looking for Nazareth. He's not looking for Bethlehem. He's looking for an explanation. Who are you? And what do you represent? Oh, I, 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 he's, he's got to know what he's dealing with here. But at this point, Jesus basically stops answering his questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. And then you see in verse 10, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Now we know what's going on here. We know who's speaking to whom. 
He's speaking to the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Who has authority over whom? Pilate assumes he has authority over Jesus. And now in frustration he says, don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? So notice that he asked Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus wouldn't say. But when Pilate says, do you not know my authority? Jesus actually answers his question. That's what we need to see. This is actually Jesus' answer to where are you from? Verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus is effectively saying, I have been sent from above. Now, we understand what Jesus is saying there. What Pilate understood, we simply don't know. But you also notice something else. Jesus says, look, you are fully responsible, you slimy, snake-like Roman governor. But there are bigger snakes than you. The greater guilt is on those who know who I am, that seen my signs, have heard my preaching, have Torah, and yet want to kill me. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you, and that's such an important term, uh, you know, right out of the Old Testament, we can hear it, delivering someone over has the greater sin. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. So that's, again, you notice Pilate. Pilate's still trying to find a way out of this, even after Jesus stunningly rebuked his authority. He told, he told Jesus, do you not know I have the authority either to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus said, oh, let's face it, you are a little Roman ten-pin dictator. I'll tell you who I am, my authority is from above. You think you're in control of this situation? Well, notice Pilate still wants to let him go because Pilate doesn't want to go and have to report to Rome that he started World War III in Jerusalem. Now this is where it gets so ugly. Where is the ultimate betrayal of Jesus in the Gospel of John? Where's the ultimate betrayal? We are face to face with it right now. What's going to happen right now? So we, we saw kind of ultimate betrayal, part one, handing him over to Pilate. Part two, give us Barabbas, but now is the climactic, horrifying part three of the Jewish betrayal. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. I'll just, just shudder, pause for a moment. To be a Jew 
was not to recognize Caesar. To be a faithful Jew was to be willing to die lest Caesar defile the temple. To be a Jew, not to mention a Jewish authority, was to deny that Caesar, the pagan emperor, had any rightful rule over the children of Israel whatsoever. That's why Judea was the great insurrectionist threat to Rome from the very beginning. Jewish people could not accept the ultimate sovereignty of Rome. But now, because Jesus is on trial and Pilate is the key issue of Roman authority, they say, when Pilate says, behold the king of the Jews, they commit the greatest heresy imaginable in Judaism. They say, we have no king but Caesar. They just tanked every bit of Jewish authority that they had. They're so determined to have Jesus crucified that they will actually turn their back on Moses and Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. They will turn their back on all the prophets. They will turn their back on the temple. They will turn their back on the priesthood. They will turn their back on Torah and law. They'll turn their back on Jehovah. We have no king but Caesar. We do our best to, to read it understanding where John knows, he knows, as under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he's writing this, this gospel, he knows exactly what he's showing us here. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Notice the quickening of the pace. It, 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 this is much, much, much quicker. John wants us to understand the events as they unfold in their horror without much commentary. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. There's historical reason to believe that it was common for death sentences and imperial proclamations to be given in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. The, the, the soldiers only spoke Latin, the lingua franca of the Roman Empire. Hebrew was the language of the Jews. The Aramaic was the language of the region. And so you put all that together. So it, it just shows you that everybody wanted, Pilate wanted everyone to know exactly what's going on here, lest there be any misunderstanding. So the chief priests of the Jews, notice, notice this just, just continues. You might consider this you know, a fourth betrayal in this case. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, that's, that's, that's imperial governor talk. It's, uh, it mirrors monarchical language, throne language. Sitting from a throne, the king says, what I have done, I have done. What I have said, I have said. Let it be unbroken. 
Pilate, in his greatest authority in his own mind, simply says, what I have written, I have written. I'm the governor. Go away. Verse 29, it's 23, excuse me. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Well, indeed. Lots of refrain here from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 will be in the background of so much of what we will see in this passage. So the soldiers did these things. The standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Okay, I have an interpretive question here. Is this two women, three women, four women? Most likely the right answer is four women. Uh, Two really doesn't make sense. And so we're told that Mary's, that Jesus' mother, Mary, is there, and his mother's sister, then Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So there, there are three Marys there, and one other woman who's the sister of Mary. Since this woman is the sister of Mary, it is unlikely that she also would have been named Mary in order now to be known as Mary of Clopas. That would have been the wife of Clopas. So when you look at, this, at the name Mary, the wife of Clopas, that must be a person other than presumably who would have been well-known to the original readers of the Gospel of John as the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So it looks like there's Mary, Mary's sister unnamed, then Mary of Clopas, and uh, Mary Magdalene. When John saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. So Jesus is concerned that his mother be cared for. And so he effectively turns to John. Remember the disciple whom he loved. He had an intimate relationship with John, even to a different degree than the other disciples. And he brings Mary into that intimacy and basically gives Mary to John and John to Mary. And what follows is a beautiful picture of the submission of John and of Mary and uh, John taking Mary into his own home. Very sweet, sweet picture. Jesus on the cross is concerned with his mother, with his mother who brought him into the world in Bethlehem, having been told of the angel who he was and of the the mission of salvation that he would accomplish. And now the grief of a mother about to watch her son crucified. After all this, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Probably a reference to Psalm 22, tongue being stuck in the top of the mouth. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, again, very symbolic, and held it to his mouth. The hyssop, you'll recall from the Old Testament, uh, purification, 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. You notice how quick, short, the crucifixion passage is in John. John wants us to understand that once Pilate had handed him over to be crucified, things went very, very quickly. Quickly enough that all we have is actually just a few words until Jesus bows his head in submission to the Father. His hour has come. Will you take this cup away from me, he says to Peter, when Peter cuts off the ear of the member of the guard in the garden? It is finished. This is my body broken for you. This is the blood of the eternal covenant. He gave up his spirit. He died. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, and and obviously the Sabbath is a Sabbath every week, but in the feast of the Passover, it was a high day. And uh, so just out of consideration of what the Jews would see, now just remember that, just just don't, don't, don't pass too quickly over this. In other words, you, you can't have a decent Passover if you have to pass this site and think about what took place. And uh, so it's optics. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The, the breaking of the legs, horrifyingly enough, the whole picture is just so horrible, it's hard for us even to really imagine it. And all attempts to depict it uh, are, of course, inadequate to the horror of actually seeing it. The breaking of the legs was for the sagging of the chest, which would lead to effective drowning or suffocation of the crucified victim. For one thing, you don't have, there, there, there are several issues in crucifixion, and, and let's just say this, you can't effectively put a mirror up to the mouth. They didn't have the ability to, uh, to know vital signs. Death was the responsibility of the executioners. They had to make certain that this criminal was actually executed. And so, in this macabre, horrifying scene, they break the legs. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And again, the fulfillment of Scripture. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Now, we know that Jesus is already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. So that's interesting. That last phrase in verse 35 says, so the news that when Jesus' side was pierced, there once came out blood and water, indicates that Jesus was actually dead. So, and that sequence turns out to be important. In the observational uh, world of the first century, death would mean that when you pierce the side, blood and water would come out. The bodily fluids are simply going. Uh, Jesus is truly dead. You've, you, you've heard this, and I'm repeating this, John says, in order that you may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Not one of his bones 
will be broken. Yes, indeed. We know this from Exodus and from Numbers. Exodus 12, 46, Numbers 9, 12. A very interesting thing that came up. Also references in the Psalms. One of the interesting things that came up uh, in Bible translation with controversy over the uh, the TNIV, the controversy over the TNIV, not not the NIV as we know it, nor the NIV revised, but the TNIV, trying to uh, remove gender distinctions, they put it in the plural, not one of their bones shall be broken, as if it's merely about the faithful of Israel. But because we know it's a messianic prophecy and that points to one savior, uh, that was a mistranslation. It's one of the reasons why many evangelicals protested that translation. All right. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews... It's interesting. So Joseph of Arimathea is a disciple of Jesus, but, but he's not publicly known yet. But he's, he's publicly owned now. That's known now. That's what, that's what you need to see. By coming forward, he exposed himself. Now he's, he's let the world know. At the worst possible time, you might say, of personal calculation. Nonetheless, Joseph of Arimathea, who evidently is a man of wealth, he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So here's Nicodemus, Nicodemus from John chapter 3. Nicodemus, bless his heart, he was born again. Nicodemus, he shows up not only as a disciple, he shows up as a disciple ready to tend to the body of Jesus as an act of filial devotion. You don't take care of people you don't know in their burial. It's an extremely intimate process. It means washing the body. It is done as an act of love. And Nicodemus shows up with the requisite uh, embalming. It doesn't actually embalm, but that's that's the idea. The preservative and honorific substances. He shows up with Myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds of it. Now, just, just, just picture that. 75 pounds of it. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And of course, in Christian tradition, there have been those who have said this is the family tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. John doesn't tell us that. John just tells us there was a new tomb that had not been used. Interesting concept. We'll come back to that. There was a new tomb that had not been used. It was available. Because it was the day of preparation and the Passover is coming, in the same way that they, the Jews did not want there to be the desecration of the site, even on the way to the temple, in which you would look outside of Jerusalem and see crucified criminals, including a Jewish or multiple Jewish crucified criminals. So in order to avoid the desecration of sight, they broke the legs. 
all but Jesus and had them removed and out of sight. In the same sense, you don't want buried bodies which are themselves ritually unclean according to Jewish law. You don't want to desecrate the site. So there is a lot of reason why a lot of people, including, of course, those who are devoted to Jesus, want to bury him. And, of course, that is in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It's, it's a sign of Jonah, as Jesus said. He is, this is so important that when the Apostles' Creed seeks to give us the essential sequence that the Christian church must affirm, he was crucified, dead, and buried. The Bible is really clear about burial. And, and, and it's not just because when we say someone was buried, we, we mean they were dead, but it is because burial is the communal affirmation of death. It is, it is the communal acceptance of death. And there is no verdict like the closing of a tomb. Uh, one of the customs in much of the world is the closing of the tomb while the family is there. It doesn't always happen in our sequence. We've kind of sanitized a lot of this, but it has been throughout Christian history, throughout world history, and a very important thing that, that the family witnesses the closing of the tomb, the closing of the casket, you might say, the closing of the vault, and, and, and then the, the filling of the, uh, of the grave. Uh, these days, it is more common that a family would leave the grave and come back and see it filled. Nonetheless, there's something important about that. There's something involved in what even the psychologists would call closure about that. And uh, there's an emphatic statement, this is the end. Of course, we know that's not true. Actually, we know it's not true for, for us. Uh, we know it's not actually true for anyone because of the day of resurrection and the judgment that is coming. But we do know that, humanly speaking, that's about as final as it gets. And John's sequence here is so short in John chapter 19 because it is the vividness and even the pace of it that just tell us that those who are insisting on killing Jesus and have gone through all the machinations with Pilate, out, in, out, in, out, in, and, and then with the Jewish authority saying he, he is declaring himself the king of the Jews. He's declaring himself to be the son of God and saying, give us Barabbas, and then saying, we have no king but Caesar. After that, John's point is he was crucified exactly according to Scripture, and he died and was buried, and chapter 19 comes to an end. And if that were the end of the story then we would not be here in the joy of Christ today. We know that is not the end of the story. But we know that it is essential to the saving act of God that had Jesus not died for our sins, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 3, if God had not, the Father had not put him forth as a propitiation for our sins in his blood, then our sin would still be upon us. So, we come to an end of John chapter 19, and we will turn shortly to John chapter 20 and John chapter 21. John has more to give us. The Holy Spirit has more intended for us, but you can sense the pace has quickened, and it will quicken still. Let's pray. My Father, we are so thankful that you have given us the clarity, the truthfulness of your word. Father, Help, you, help us 
to see the betrayal that lurks in our own heart. Help us to sense why it is that sinful human beings are so determined to kill the Son of God. Father, draw us closer to Christ, that we would cling to Him, the crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.